All right, so um, obviously we have some seating issues. If there are seats on the outside, if you wouldn't mind squeezing in to let them be free on the outside so people come in. Uh, Y'all in the overflow room, we see you, we hear you. Um, so th this, is, this is part of the things that we're going to pray about. But here's how we're going to begin. Uh, there's an origin story to Redeemer. Uh, and for those of you that hadn't heard it before, I want you to think of it as a way of seeing. Those of you that have heard it for the millionth time, I want you to see it as a way of being recharged, being re-energized. Uh, there's a guy named Irv Queel who's up in Dallas, and he attends a church. It's a sister church to this one, and he had been praying for a church to happen in Waco. Uh, and this was before there was anything called a network that was put together for banding people together to pull the resources together, the churches together, so they can plant churches. And he just started praying for a gospel church in Waco. Uh, Nancy and I leave uh, Boston, come down to start seminary in Dallas, and then about two years into the, my time of being there, he comes up to me after class one day. I was teaching a Sunday school, and he says, Jeff, I'm praying that God sends you to plant a church in Waco. And I looked Irv, this elder of this major church in Dallas, I looked him in the eye and said, Irv, don't pray that prayer. <laughs> I'm not going to Waco. Not at all. Uh, just a side note, my wife, when she heard it, she was excited because she, she went to Baylor. She thought this would be a great place for God to use us here. So she starts praying that we come here. Irv starts praying we come here. So now I send all my prayer requests to them because God obviously doesn't hear my prayers. <laughs> so what happened was is I eventually was talked into at least doing a vision trip. And so I did a vision trip, which was at least go see it. I mean, the guy that was saying, he goes, Jeff, just go see it. Just go see Waco. Now, Waco is not what it is today. <laughs> You know, there wasn't the, what's the silos? There was none of that. There was none of all the stuff that's here today. There wasn't, was there a Chewy? I mean, no, there wasn't Chewy's. Was there a Chili's? Maybe a Chili's. Yeah, maybe a, a restaurant in the whole town. I don't know. So we come here and we meet with two people that work for the university. And uh, the guy that had brought me was excited to introduce me to them because they were going to tell me a little bit about this area. And this is the first thing they said to me. They said, a Reformed church, the type of church that we wanted to plant here, a Presbyterian church. He said, both of them, it will never make it in Waco. Now, the guy that I was with, he's this high-powered, he worked for a major corporation in Dallas, and he was like, he shut the meeting down really quick, and he starts leading me out, and we're walking to his black Mercedes, and he turns to me and says, don't listen to a word they said. And I looked at him and said, I think I'm being called. <laughs> so we, I say we're, we're going to do this thing. Uh, I meet with a, a mentor of mine, and I realize that we're going to be there in about two weeks. And then I had another conversation with this guy, and he says, listen, Jeff, you've got two years to make this thing work. You have funds for two years, and then it's done. It's over. And I said, okay, so let me get this straight. I'm bringing two two babies, and one on the way in about three weeks to a place that I have two years of money to make it in a place that people say it would never make it. So I, for the first time, I felt my pulse <laughs> flutter. Up to this point, I was like, heck yeah. So I go to Dr. Hannah, and I say, Dr. Hannah, I said, listen, 
I tell him all my concerns, all my anxieties. I tell him what was just told to me. I laid it all out before him, and he looks at me, and the way he does, he turned his head the way he does, grabs his chin the way he does, and he says, do you know what you're doing, Jeff? And I said, well, yeah. No, that's why I'm talking to you. He says, Jeff, you're going to Waco to see if God will build this church. He either does, Jeff, or he doesn't. And it's not up to you. And if he doesn't, go into coaching. It's no big deal. And I went, now that's a mission. I can live with that mission. So fast forward to where we are today, y'all. We are, uh, what we're having is, is room problems. I want you to know, last week, remember we looked at how the gospel advances? The gospel always advances, always advances. The gospel always grows. The gospel has its own agenda. What is the gospel? It's Jesus and his salvation. Jesus has an agenda. The gospel, the message itself, is divine energies all on its own. It has divine life and divine power and fruitfulness all on its own. It reaches us all on its own. It renews us all on its own. It advances all on its own. So what we're experiencing is a gospel problem. So what are we going to do about it? I told you last week that we're, leadership is like, we're scrambling, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to two services. That's how we're immediately going to do this. And we'll talk about the details later of what that looks like. But you need to know that is a means to an end. The end is for this church to be what's called an anchor gospel church. That means that we have a large gospel footprint in the city of Waco to such an extent that it actually ripples into the culture of the churches and into the culture of this town. Such an extent that there is leadership and training and resources that we will be what's called a church planning movement. In other words, there's, there's the whole central Texas that needs churches. And they're not on anybody's church planning map. I can tell you that. Nobody in our denomination is thinking of Grosbeck or Mart or West or Hillsboro, but we are. So whatever we do next is a means to an end. And so whatever we do next is uncomfortable and it's meant to be uncomfortable because it's not the end, it's not the mission. So in one sense, I'm happy that we're gonna be uncomfortable because we have to keep moving, because God is pushing us. Or if I told the leaders last night, I said, I like to think he's pushing us. Some of you like to think he's encouraging you, if that makes you feel better. So that's what we're going to do. All right, so let's just briefly pray, since I just took up the whole prayer time. Let's pray about this, and then we'll get into the sermon. So, Lord, um, we lay this out before you, just like... <laughs> Just like the kings of old did when they were surrounded and when the Rabshika came and, and Isaiah laid it all out before you. Hezekiah laid it all out before you. Here it is. You already know it. You've already gone before us. This is your work. You've been building your church. So right away we want to tell you, Lord, all, everything goes to you. And that apart from you, we are nothing. And apart from you, we do absolutely nothingness. So, look what you've done. 
Look what you're doing. So help us figure out the details. Help us figure out the best way to be less, well, the best way to be uncomfortable. In other words, how do you hug a cactus, as the saying goes? May we hug it the best way we can, temporarily. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so, once upon a time ago, there was this preacher. Now, this preacher is a famous preacher. And if I told you his name, you, most of you, 90% of you, would be like, oh, yeah. And that's not why, and that's why I'm not going to tell you his name. Because I have so much respect for this preacher. I'm listening to him one Sunday afternoon, and I'm listening to him usually like I need to be put back together after Sundays, and, and so I need to be preached back to life again, and uh, I read the scriptures to get spoken back to life again, and I'll, I'll listen to the message of other preachers to be spoken back to life again, and I was listening to him this one particular afternoon, and I heard him say, God has never let me down. I've never walked into the pulpit without a message from God. And I'm in my beginning preaching years when I heard this. And I went, wow. Amazing. Man, he's special. The next day was Monday, which is my day off, and it was Thanksgiving week. And so... I wanted, because we had been going and going and going and going, you know, your church planning, the church is young, I mean, there's just so much things to do, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to work Monday on my day off, Tuesday, Wednesday, and I'm going to be done so I can spend time with my family, my young family, four kids at that time, Ty wasn't here, all young, young babies, young kids, I'll get everything done so I can be spend time with my family for three full days. I'll get all the pastoral care done. I'll get all the appointments done. I'll get all the leadership issues done. I'll get all the the administration done, all the emails. Do you know what's interesting? Just can I get a little time out about that, emails? Ever since I've accepted Colin Coates into my life, I've had less of an issue with emails, so much so that I rarely check them anymore, some of you may have noticed. It's very freeing. All right, back to this. Pastoral, any fires, I want to get it all done. So I go up to Nancy and I said, honey, listen, I want to get all my work done by evening, Wednesday night, and it's all the time with the family. I'll spend all the time with the family. So you know how it goes, right? You can already anticipate how this is going to go. It's 8 p.m. on Wednesday night. I turn off my computer, put it back in its bag, my leather bag, And I walk out of the coffee shop without a sermon. And all I hear is, God has never let me down. I've never walked into the pulpit without a message from God. And it was biting, and it was accusing, and it was condemning, and it was taunting. God has never let me down. So I opened the door to my truck. 
I sit behind the wheel, and I close the door so nobody can hear me. And I yell, you let me down. Oh, God. Um, if this is you this morning, you let me down. Oh, God, you let me down. This text is for you. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. What then? In other words, this is left over from last week, but it connects to this week. Paul's asking what really matters. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So Paul, what really matters? Paul, what ultimately matters in life? Paul, what moves the life? Paul, what moves your relationships? Paul, what moves work? What energizes you? What energizes life? What energizes algebra? What makes a scoring of a touchdown real? What moves a marriage and parenting? Paul, what ultimately matters? Only Jesus, Paul says. Only Jesus moves all those things. Only Jesus energizes a life. And that was last week, but it bleeds into this week. How many of you have an old school Bible? You remember the printed kind? Any of y'all still have those? Okay, well, if you look at the end, when we get to the end, well, right here, do you see that? Yes, and I will rejoice. Nobody knows where to stick that. Does it go with what we looked at last week, which is 15 through 18, or does it go with what we're doing this week? Does it go with 19 to 26? What's the answer? I don't know. I really don't. But it doesn't mess with the flow of the text, but that's how this text is moving. Here we go. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Literally, This will turn out for my salvation. That's the word in the original language. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. It's amazing. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is abundantly, the word says, better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh, Lord, uh, shine on the page. Would you speak us all back to life again? May we see, even as we started the service, that your mercy is more, and your mercy is what moves life. And so even now, would you convince us that mercy is the mover? Mercy is the engine. Mercy is the power. Mercy is everything. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, you let me down. Oh, God, you let me down. Is this you? 
So this is what the Apostle Paul, the book of Philippians, this text, the Bible, and God is saying to you right now, if this is you, I know you feel this way. I know you feel this way. I know you feel this way when you suffer without relief, despite your prayers. Paul, the Bible, Philippians, God says to you, I know you feel this way. When good things, when right things, when biblical things, when God things do not come true. You want a close connection with God, it does not come true. You want a girlfriend, you want a husband, you want children, it does not come true. You want change. You want change from your anxiety. You want change from your depression. You want change from things you can't stand about yourself. It does not change. You want faith. You want more trust in God. It does not come true. You want to be used by God. It does not come true. You just want to spend time with your family over Thanksgiving. It does not come true. Just a side note, you know what else I told God? I literally asked him, am I just a ministry machine for you? How about that one? It does not come true. The Apostle Paul um, the Bible, God, knows you feel this way. When bad things, unbiblical things, sinful things, evil things do come true. You're abused. It did come true. You're sinned against. It did come true. You lose a child in a fire on an island that you can't get to. It did come true. You wreck your marriage. You blow up your family. It did come. God says, I know you feel this way. You let me down. Look at verse 19. You put it up on the screen. There we go. I'm going to give you the original language. I'm going to give you the original order, the original structure. Sometimes, I, I, sometimes it's just helpful. It's helpful to see how the original language structures things because it sometimes makes it more clear, which is so interesting about translations sometimes. So it goes like this. I know that this will turn out for my salvation. So all the help stuff and the prayer stuff is all modifying this main idea. I know that this will turn out for my salvation. <laughs> What? I mean, seriously. What? What in the world is Paul talking about? How does he know this? Seriously, how does he know this? Can you imagine this? Can you imagine living like this? Can you imagine? I'm suffering without relief despite my prayers. I know this will turn out for my salvation. 
Or how about, I want a close relationship with God, but it's not coming true. I know this will turn out for my salvation. Or how about, I want a girlfriend, I want to be married, we want children. It's not coming true. I know this will turn out for my salvation. Or how about, I've been abused, it did come true. I know this will turn out for my salvation. What Paul says right there drives everyone crazy. Everyone. You should read the commentaries. So the Bible experts say, we know why. We know why he knows. You see, there's only two possible answers. Number one, God tells him. He's an apostle. He gets direct revelation. You don't. So ultimately, this doesn't apply to you. Number two, Paul has an inside person, someone on the inside on Caesar's team, someone like maybe one of the Navy SEALs he's chained to, or one of, who knows, a sympathizer, and gives him insider information, says, look, Caesar knows this case can't hold up. He just doesn't want to be sued. Will you walk away quietly? So in other words, only people that get insider information can actually read this and have this apply to their life. So only politicians get this passage. Uh, pastors and church leaders know why this is true. They say things like, well, pastors and church leaders are special. They're specially anointed. So God tells pastors and church leaders special things. God connects them to special things. That's how other people read this passage. How does Paul know this? Well, many Christians and churches say they know why. So if you look at verse 19 again, can we put that up? Do you see, do you see it? Do you see prayer? And do you see the Holy Spirit? So others will say, this is how Paul knows, if you pray for it, you will get it. You will get a word of knowledge. You'll get special insight. You will get this understanding of situations and circumstances uh, that aren't written in the Scripture, that are outside the Scripture, that you will know this will happen for you. Or, if you look at the Holy Spirit, if you learn how to activate the Holy Spirit in your life, if you learn how to tap into it, you will tap into the deeper things of God, and you will tap, or, tap into the deeper ways that God moves, and you will have a special connection, and God will be more activated in your life. And so that's how people understand that Paul knows this. And then there are unchurched people that say they know why this is true. They just say, you Christians are just plain weird. And weird people always think they know things they don't. Right? How? How does Paul know this? Paul is in jail. Here's the issue. The answer is this. I'm just going to give you the, I'm going to give you the answer, and then we're going to prove it. This is how he knows. Because he knows he cannot lose. I know this will turn out for my salvation. I am in a struggle I cannot lose. Amazing. Can you imagine if that's true? Can you imagine right now that whatever your struggle is, you are in a struggle you cannot lose? So Paul's in jail. He's chained to the infamous imperial guard in either three, six, or nine-hour shifts. You need to think Navy SEALs, and you need to think 9,000 of them. 
And so Paul, do you see the picture? Paul's a prisoner of war. Paul is a prisoner of war in the most powerful superpower the world has ever seen, chained to the most elite soldiers the ancient world has ever seen, completely surrounded by forces beyond his control. If Jesus was describing this situation, he'd say, Paul is in the very gates of hell. But do you see what Paul sees? I'm in a struggle I cannot lose. Do you see how Paul thinks? I'm in a struggle I cannot lose. Do you see how Paul feels and experiences it? I'm in a struggle I cannot lose. So remember that the title of this series is Joy in Jail, right? Everyone wants joy. No one wants jail. Paul has both. Paul says, I know this will turn out for my salvation. I know I'm in a struggle I cannot lose. You let me down, God. Oh, God, you let me down. And this passage, the apostle, the Bible, God says to you, you're in a struggle. You cannot lose. Some of you are thinking, man, I want to believe this. Gosh, I, I want to believe. Who wouldn't want to believe that? Who wouldn't want to believe? I'm in a struggle I cannot lose. Who wouldn't want to believe when I walk in the valley of the shadow of death? I don't fear. No fear. Who wouldn't want that, that kind of courage? Who wouldn't want that kind of boldness? Who wouldn't want that kind of energy when everyone is falling to pieces and you stand there and help them? Because I'm in a struggle I cannot lose. When you get a late night call, I'm in a struggle I cannot lose. When your family's falling to pieces, I'm in a struggle I cannot lose. When work doesn't work out, I'm in a struggle I cannot lose. When your relationships go south, I'm in a struggle I cannot lose. One of my favorite pastimes as a young dad was to turn my kids' questions into a question. And the reason why I had to do this is because of our firstborn. I literally would call him Mr. Question Mark for a Brain because he came to me with questions. Why, Dad? Why, Dad? Why, Dad? Why, Dad? Why, Dad? I look at Nancy and I go, <laughs> right? Why, Dad? Why, Dad? Why, Dad? Dad, why can't we see God? So I learned. Well, Tiger, why do you think we can't see God? Best answers ever. If you ever do this as a parent, this is the best way to do it. Well, why, why do you think we can't see God? The best ever. Or like, Dad, why are dogs better than cats? Somehow he picked that up in our house. I don't know. And I said, well, son or daughter, why do you think? Probably, it's probably Brynn. Well, why do you think, honey? Why do you think dogs are better than cats? Well, I don't. That's why I'm trying to figure this out. Or, Dad, why are you yelling at that other car? Well, why do you think I'm yelling at that other car? Right? Well, the all-time best, like the absolute best question of all time happened <laughs> when Nancy first became pregnant with our fifth, Ty. And we have an eight-year-old daughter, Belle, and a 10-year-old son named Knox. 
And I don't know exactly if it was both of them coming to me or one of them came to me, so I'm just going to include them both in this. Dad, how did mom get a baby in her tummy? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Go ask your mom. So this three-and-a-half-year-old boy is eating an apple, and he's getting, it's taking him a long time. He's a three-and-a-half-year-old boy, so he's probably gumming most of it, right? And it's, as he takes time, he's getting down to the end of it, he starts to notice that it's turning brown. So he goes and asks his dad, well, why is this apple turning brown? Now, what the dad should have done if he had gone to the Hatton School of Parenting, he should have said, well, son, why do you think it's turning brown? But instead, he gave an answer, and he says... Because after you ate the skin off, the meat of the apple came into contact with the air, which caused it to oxidize, thus changing, three-year-old boy, thus changing its molecular structure and turning it into a different color. After a lengthy pause, the boy says, Daddy, are you talking to me? <laughs> Paul, in verse 19, for I know this will turn out for my salvation, Paul could have said to you, and he could say to the Bible expert, and he could say to pastors, and he could say to church leaders, and he could say to churches, and he could say to Christians, he could say this. Hey, you are in a struggle that will turn out for a multiplicity of transcendent aspects of a comprehensive salvation that Jesus accomplished for you by his perfect substitutionary life, his punishing substitutionary death, and his powerful substitutionary resurrection. But he didn't. Paul simply says, you cannot lose You cannot lose. Because, see, salvation in this text is a comprehensive salvation that Jesus has already accomplished. I mean, if theologians were here, they'd say, like the old, like the dad, it oxidized. They're going to tell you he accomplished your justification, your sanctification, which is your Christian life, and your glorification, which is the end of all things and the world to come. That on his life, his death, and his resurrection, the whole package, the comprehensive salvation is done, finished, achieved, worked, accomplished. Believe it. Well, Jeff, what's the application here? Believe it. I, 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 what do I do? Believe it. You are in a struggle. You cannot lose. Believe it. Instead, Paul simply says, Jesus has done for you everything that ever needed to be done. It's done. It's finished. It's over. Well, okay. Well, what about, what do you need? What do you need this morning, right now? What do you need? Do you need faith? Jesus accomplished it for you. Ask him for it. Well, what do you need? Do you need, like, to change in a certain area? Jesus accomplished it for you. It's called sanctification. Ask him for it. Well, what do you need? Do you need hope? Do you need love? Do you need wisdom? Do you need power? Do you need strength? Jesus has already accomplished it for you. It's done. It's over. Believe it. Ask for it. Well, what do you need? Do you need forgiveness? 
He already accomplished it for you. Ask for it. Believe it. Well, do you need righteousness? Do you need perfection? Do you need holiness? Are you tired of feeling like a loser? Are you, are you wanting to feel justified? Are you wanting to be somebody? Do you want to be important? Do you want medals of honor? Jesus has already accomplished it for you. Believe it. You are important. You are significant. You have his very perfection. He gives you his own righteousness. What do you need? Do you need life change? Do you need to think new things, feel new things, live new things, relate new things, do new things? Jesus already accomplished it. Believe it. Ask for it. In another place, Paul says, these are all the spiritual blessings. They're already done. They're accomplished. They're with Jesus in the heavenlies, and he gives them to you. Do you need to feel loved by God? Do you want to be used by God? Jesus already accomplished it. Do you want ministry gifts? Do you want to serve the church? Do you want to have some energy and some guts? Jesus already accomplished it. Do you want courage, bravery, fruit of the Spirit? Jesus already You see the point. Believe it. Believe it. Ask him for it. Some of you are thinking, but I am losing right? I'm losing the struggle with sin, my anger, my anxiety, my worry, my lust, the need to be recognized and to be approved by people. I'm a people pleaser. I fear man. I hate people. Many of you are thinking I'm losing the struggle with shame. Right? You know that painful, primal feeling of not being enough? You're losing that struggle. You feel so insecure all the time. You're in your head all the time, constantly thinking about what you're doing and how you're doing it. Or what people think about what they think about what you're doing and how you're doing it. There are struggles you cannot win. You're in a struggle you cannot lose, but there are struggles you cannot win. For example, you cannot win the struggle of dealing with your sin on your own. You can't win that. It can't happen. And so that means if you try to deal with sin's guilt, its condemnation, you try to pay that debt, you can never pay that debt. There's always new debts. It's never done, and that's why you can never rest. And that's why you can never feel good about yourself. And you'll never be able to deal with sin's power. In today's language, it's, the Bible calls it, sin's power can be seen in enslaving things, right? It can be seen in uncontrollable emotions, you know, like, what did I write down here? Anger, anxiety, despair, overconfidence, manicness. It can be seen... The power of sin can be seen in this need for things. You need human approval and love. You need it. You need it. You must have it, right? Therapeutic world says, oh, it's an addiction. Okay, whatever. Pick your word. But you and I cannot deal with sin's guilt. It's condemnation. And do you know what the emotion of condemnation is? Guess what it is? Shame. So you can't deal with not only sin's guilt and sin's condemnation and the emotion that goes with it, shame on your own, you can't deal with sin's power. It's enslaving power on your own. 
only, only Jesus' death can deal with your sin. Only Jesus on the cross becomes your guilt and your condemnation deals with it. Only at the cross does Jesus take the dominion and the power of sin and at the cross kills it. And only Jesus in his resurrection can deal with giving you new life. So yeah, God, you let me down. Oh God, you let me down. And then God says back, you're in a struggle. You cannot lose. Let me pray for us.